Thank you so much. It is wonderful to be back. Thank you all for coming. And I think what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about how I came to write this book, um, just a little bit about my research. Then I'm going to read a very slimmed down version of the first chapter, and then we'll have our conversation. I do not start a book with any idea of characters or plot. My portal into fiction is always a time and a place. And I've learned over the years to identify a certain kind of excitement that I'll feel about a, a time and a place and a sense of atmosphere that I have about that time and place. And in the case of Manhattan Beach, that time and place were New York during World War II. And I started thinking about that in about 2004. And I think the reason really had to do with 9-11, because I, I lived in New York then, as I do now, and I was, I was thunderstruck by how instantaneously New York became a war zone. It really happened in the course of a day, and it lasted for months and months. And it led me to wonder what it was like to be in New York during the war. Uh, and so, and I think it also led me to wonder about the trajectory of American power, uh, global power, how it amassed during and after the war, what that felt like, and I guess sort of naturally um, what, what would happen next. Um, and so I, I started by just looking at a lot of images of New York during World War II, and what struck me profoundly, it, particularly in a collection of photos by a photographer named Andreas Feininger called New York in the 40s, is that there was water in almost every image. It was as if the heart of the city was not in its middle, but at its edges. And that was really surprising to me. I had been living in New York since 1987. I had taken a couple of rides on the Circle Line. I liked running on the rivers. But really, I had given no thought at all in those many years to the port of New York. But of course, New York is a port city. It, it wouldn't exist without the port. And so I started thinking about the port and, and its life during World War II. And in a certain sense, the waterfront of New York led me over the course of the next five years while I was writing other books, but also kind of ruminating on, on the period that I hope to write about for this one, the waterfront led me into many different worlds that ended up being important in the book. And the first of those worlds was the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I had dimly heard of it. It was seven blocks from where I lived then and live now. Um, it, I, I, I sort of knew that it was no longer a Navy Yard, and that's really sort of all I knew. I went on a tour of it in 2005, and I was amazed by what I saw. There was so much of the war still there. I went into uh, Building 77, which is where the captain of the yard's office was. There were no windows in the building except at the top. The roof was caving in. It was full of snow and ice. And there were still World War II maps all over the walls. Um, the, the Navy Yard has been an industrial park since the 60s when it was decommissioned, I should add that. Um, but it was, it, it was just amazing to see this place that had both the Steiner Movie Studio, which is a state-of-the-art um, movie production site where lots of television shows and movies are made, and yet these buildings that in some cases were literally crumbling into the water, or in the case of Building 77, the roof was caving in. The yard has continued to evolve. To give you an idea of how much, Building 77 now has glistening windows all over it and a food court in the bottom. So I think we can guess that those World War II maps are probably gone. So 
I got very interested in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. It was the largest builder and repairer of Allied ships in the world during World War II. It uh, repaired 5,000 ships and built 17 battleships, including the USS Missouri, where the Japanese signed the surrender. And it had 70,000 people working in it at the height of the war, of whom almost 5,000 were women. So all of that was fascinating, and I began trying to research the Navy Yard in every way I could. And fairly quickly, I found myself at the Brooklyn Historical Society, where, which was right near my son's preschool, and I, I, he was there a couple of hours, a few days a week, and during the, those short periods, I would come to the Brooklyn Historical Society, and in their library, I read various documents they had uh, pertaining to the Navy Yard, and in, partic in particular, a collection of letters, which was between two people who had met at the Navy Yard, Lucille and Al Colkin, and they had married Quickly, they'd fallen in love. He was a machinist and she was a shipfitter. Uh, in one of her letters, she referred to their relationship as from maidenhood to marriage in three easy months. Um, and she, Lucy, was a wonderful letter writer and a, a, an absolute gold mine for someone like me who was looking for not just information about the Navy Yard, but sort of everything about that moment. She was very cultured. She went to lots of movies and concerts. She read a lot. And she told, and Al joined the Navy. Um, as the war heated up, and so she wrote to him just about every day, often on the streetcar on the way to work, so her handwriting would get a little crazy as the streetcar would, would bump over the tracks. And she told him all kinds of things that were of great interest to me, because they had met at the Navy Yard. She was very comfortable talking in detail about her work, which was great from my point of view. She also was just madly in love. Um, and she was, it was, her letters were full of sweet endearments. At one point, she kissed the letter paper, and every crease of her lips was still visible all those years later. It was, it was so strange to know what the lips of someone you've never even seen look like. <laughs> um, and I found that I was so... I was so taken into her thoughts and her world that I would sometimes be late to pick up my son from preschool. I would just get sort of swept away in, into Lucy's mind. And at one point, she wrote to Al that she had had a dream that they had had a baby. And he, I think he was changing the diaper. And it led her to say, ah, Butch, which is what she called him, what will our lives be like? You know, will, will we live in California? Will we, will we be in Brooklyn? You know, how many children will we have? And I was reading this and I thought, yeah, I wonder what will happen. And then I thought, this was 1944. There are answers to these questions by now. So I did what, what we all do when we have a question that needs an answer. I walked straight to the nearest computer terminal and typed in her name. And within 30 seconds of reading her fantasies about her own future in her handwriting, I was reading a newspaper obituary of her. And it was really a shock, one of those sort of collisions of information that has become possible in our modern time, in which it almost feels as if sometimes we know too much. And I learned that they had had two daughters. They had indeed returned to New York. Um, and she had passed away not many years before, and Al had survived her. And it was mentioned that she had worked at the Navy Yard. And I, I felt stricken. I returned to her letters and at first it was almost hard to read them because I felt that I knew so much more than she did about her own future. 
Um, but, but eventually she sort of lulled me back in and, uh, and I, I enjoyed reading letters until they stopped because she went to join Al in, in California where he was at a naval base. And I felt so sad that there was no more to read. And I felt a strange sense of having lost a friend even though I had never actually, not only had I never met this person, but she was not even physically alive in the time that I felt I had come to know her. So I wrote an essay called Reading Lucy, which was published in a collection of essays by various writers about Brooklyn. And that, and, it, and just about that feeling of, of the kind of odd friendship that can come about through correspondence, even posthumously. And a few months after that collection was published, I received an email on my public email address, and the subject line was, I am Lucy's daughter. And I really, I will never forget that moment. It was amazing. It was one of Lucy's two daughters. It was Judy. Um, and so Judy and, and her sister Marge, who I will tell you now, is here tonight, and I'm very happy about that. which is one reason I'm telling this anecdote in so much detail. Um, Lucy and Marge arranged a trip to the Navy Yard with several people. It included member, other members of the family. It included a woman named Ida who had actually worked at the Navy Yard with Lucy and was now in her 80s. It included Al also in his 80s. We all tooled around with the archivist of the yard in a van, and it was wonderful, although I have to say that I felt very shy around Al because I felt like I knew way too much about <laughs> Al. <laughs> um, but eventually, you know, I, I got used to that, and he actually became one of the first people that I interviewed for an oral history project that I collaborated on with the Brooklyn Historical Society and the Brooklyn Navy Yard to try to interview everyone we could find, men and women, who had worked at the yard during the war. And that led to some really interesting interviews that helped me in very specific ways um, when I, years later, finally started writing this book. Um, other worlds that the water led me into were deep sea diving, which I had not realized until I was researching the Navy Yard is a feature of ship repair uh, and became a very important part of the book. Crime, the, the waterfront was absolutely full of crime. Uh, immortalized in the movie On the Waterfront, which is actually drawn from a series of newspaper exposés of the corruption on the sort of Irish waterfront of New York on the west side. So that movie is very strongly based on fact. Um, I'm, my grandfather was a cop on the south side of Chicago. I, I love crime as long as I'm not its victim, which unfortunately I have been far too many times. I'm an easy mark, clearly. Um, so that so deep sea diving, the the world of organized crime, both the both sort of the, on the Irish waterfront and also um, the the organ the, what was known as the syndicate, which was the branch of organized crime that basically got organized to take over the liquor business during prohibition um, and became sort of folded into mainstream society in a way that was fascinating uh, to me and that ended up also being important in the book. And finally, the world of merchant sailing, which was absolutely fascinating. And many, many people sailed, um, and well-known people during the war, um, 
Woody Guthrie is one example, and there's a fantastic memoir by a guy who sailed with Woody Guthrie in the Merchant Marine. They were all doing this to avoid the army, which in a way was a really tragically bad choice because the Merchant Marine, I had not known this, lost more men proportionately than any branch of the armed services. These boats, these ships were essentially unarmed and were sitting ducks for German and Japanese U-boats, especially uh, German. And, uh, and so that became another fascinating realm of research. So between 2005 and 2010, when I had time, because I had two little kids and was uh, writing other books, I had many adventures around this research, which we can talk about um, in the Q&A. Um, but, but I still, when it was done, had no characters and no plot. And part of what drove the research was really a need to interview these people who were in their 80s and not delay. Um, get these amazing stories captured um, while, while the people were there to tell them and, and eager to. Um, it is not unusual at all, as I said, for me not to have a plot or characters when I start. In fact, it's, it seems to be an essential part of the process that it is one of mystery and discovery for me. And one important element of this mysterious process, process of discovery is that I write fiction almost exclusively by hand. And the reason I do that is that, well, first of all, my handwriting is illegible, um, sometimes permanently, which, is, which can be a drag. Um, but in, in the moment, what it keeps me from doing is reading very clearly what I'm writing. I like to try to get away from my conscious mind and my analytical mind and be surprised by what comes, by what happens, in a way that I think must be something like improvisational theater. So, I sat down in 2012 with lots of textures, anecdotes, a lot of reading in my mind, but, but absolutely no plot and no characters. And the first surprise that I encountered was that I was not writing about the Navy Yard as I had thought I would begin to immediately, but in fact about the Depression. Um, and, and an encounter between three among three characters who end up being very important characters in the book. And I'm now gonna read you a, a, just a sliver of that. The first section of the book is called The Shore. They'd driven all the way to Mr. Stiles' house before Anna realized that her father was nervous. First, the ride had distracted her sailing along Ocean Parkway as if they were headed for Coney Island, although it was four days past Christmas and impossibly cold for the beach. Then the house itself, a palace of golden brick, three stories high, windows all the way around, a rowdy flapping of green and yellow striped awnings. It was the last house on the street which dead-ended at the sea. Her father eased the Model J against the curb and turned off the motor. Toots, he said, don't squint at Mr. Stiles' house. Of course I won't squint at his house. You're doing it now. No, she said, I'm making my eyes narrow. That's squinting, he said, you've just defined it. Not for me. He turned to her sharply, don't squint. That was when she knew. She heard him swallow dryly and felt a chirp of worry in her stomach. She was not used to seeing her father nervous, 
Distracted, yes. Preoccupied, certainly. Why doesn't Mr. Styles like squinting? She asked. No one does. You never told me that before. Would you like to go home? No, thank you. I can take you home. If I squint, if you give me the headache I'm starting to get. If you take me home, Anna said, you'll be awfully late. She thought he might slap her. He'd done it once after she'd let fly a string of curses she'd heard on the docks, his hand finding her cheek invisibly as a whip. The specter of that slap still haunted Anna with the odd effect of heightening her boldness in defiance of it. Her father rubbed the middle of his forehead, then looked back at her. His nerves were gone. She had cured them. Anna, he said, you know what I need you to do. Of course. Be your charming self with Mr. Stiles' children while I speak with Mr. Stiles. I knew that, Papa. Of course you did. She left the Model J with eyes wide and watering in the sun. It had been their own automobile until after the stock market crash. Now it belonged to the union, which lent it back for her father to do union business. Anna liked to go with him when she wasn't in school, to racetracks, communion breakfasts, and church events, office buildings where elevators lofted them to high floors, occasionally even a restaurant, but never before to a private home like this. Mr. Stiles' daughter, Tabitha, was only eight, three years younger than Anna. Still, Anna allowed the littler girl to tow her by the hand to a downstairs nursery, a room dedicated purely to playing, filled with a shocking array of toys. A quick survey discovered a flossy flirt doll, several large teddy bears, and a rocking horse. There was a nurse in the nursery, a freckled, raspy-voiced woman whose woolen dress strained like an overstacked bookshelf to repress her massive bust. Anna guessed from the broad lay of her face and the merry switch of her eyes that nurse was Irish and felt a danger of being seen through. She resolved to keep her distance. Two small boys, twins, or at least interchangeable, were struggling to attach electric train tracks. Partly to avoid nurse, who rebuffed the boys' pleas for help, Anna crouched beside the disjointed tracks and proffered her services. Tabitha cradled her new Christmas doll, a Shirley Temple in a fox fur coat. She watched and tranced as Anna built her brother's train tracks. Where do you live, she asked. Not far. By the beach? Near it. May I come to your house? Of course, Anna said, fastening tracks as fast as the boys handed them to her. A figure eight was nearly complete. Have you any brothers, Tabitha asked. A sister, Anna said. She's eight, like you, but she's mean because of being so pretty. Tabitha looked alarmed. How pretty? Extremely pretty, Anna said gravely, then added, she looks like our mother who danced with the Follies. The error of this boast accosted her a moment later. Never part with a fact unless you've no choice. Her father's voice in her ears. After lunch, as a reward for their fine behavior, nurse allowed them to bundle into coats and hats and bolt from a back door along a path that ran behind Mr. Stiles' house to a private beach. 
a long arc of snow-dusted sand tilted down to the sea. Anna had been to the docks in winter many times, but never to a beach. Miniature waves shrugged up under skins of ice that crackled when she stomped them. Seagulls screamed and dove in the riotous wind, their bellies stark white. The twins had brought along Buck Rogers' ray guns, but the wind turned their shots and death throes into pantomime. Anna watched the sea. There was a feeling she had standing at its edge, an electric mix of attraction and dread. What would be exposed if all of that water should suddenly vanish? A landscape of lost objects, sunken ships, hidden treasure, gold and gems, and the charm bracelet that had fallen from her wrist into a storm drain. Dead bodies, her father always added with a laugh. To him, the ocean was a wasteland. Your shoes are getting wet, Tabby said through chattering teeth. Should we take them off, Anna asked, to feel the cold? I don't want to feel it. I do. Tabby watched Anna unbuckle the straps of the black patent leather shoes she shared with Zara Klein downstairs. She unrolled her wool stockings and placed her white, bony, long-for-her-age feet in the icy water. Each foot delivered an agony of sensation to her heart, one part of which was a flame of ache that felt unexpectedly pleasant. What's it like? Tabby shrieked. Cold, Anna said, awful, awful cold. It took all of her strength to keep from recoiling, and her resistance added to the odd excitement. Glancing toward the house, she saw two men in dark overcoats following the paved path set back from the sand. Holding their hats in the wind, they looked like actors in a silent picture. Are those our papas? Daddy likes to have business talks outdoors, Tabby said, away from prying ears. Anna felt benevolent compassion toward young Tabitha, excluded from her father's business affairs when Anna was allowed to listen in whenever she pleased. She heard little of interest. Her father's job was to pass greetings or good wishes between union men and other men who were their friends. These salutations included an envelope, sometimes a package, that he would deliver or receive casually. You wouldn't notice unless you were paying attention. Over the years, he'd talked to Anna a great deal without knowing he was talking, and she had listened without knowing what she heard. She was surprised by the familiar, animated way her father was speaking to Mr. Stiles. Apparently, they were friends after all that. The men changed course and began crossing the sand toward Anna and Tabby. Anna stepped hurriedly out of the water, but she'd left her shoes too far away to put them back on in time. Mr. Stiles was a broad, imposing man with brilliantined black hair showing under his hat brim. Say, is this your daughter? He asked, withstanding Arctic temperatures without so much as a pair of stockings. Anna sensed her father's displeasure. So it is, he said. Anna, say good day to Mr. Stiles. Very pleased to meet you, she said, shaking his hand firmly as her father had taught her and taking care not to squint as she peered up at him. Mr. Stiles looked younger than her father, without shadows or creases in his face. 
She sensed an alertness about him, a humming tension, perceptible even through his billowing overcoat. He seemed to await something to react to or be amused by. Right now, that something was Anna. Mr. Stiles crouched beside her on the sand and looked directly into her face. Why the bare feet, he asked. Don't you feel the cold, or are you showing off? Anna had no ready answer. It was neither of those, more an instinct to keep Tabby awed and guessing. But even that, she couldn't articulate. Why would I show off? She asked. She said, I'm nearly 12. Well, what's it feel like? She smelled mint and liquor on his breath, even in the wind. It struck her that her father couldn't hear their conversation. It only hurts at first, she said. After a while, you can't feel anything. Mr. Stiles grinned as if her reply were a ball he'd taken physical pleasure in catching. Words to live by, he said, then rose again to his immense height. She's strong, he remarked to Anna's father. So she is. Her father avoided her eyes. Mr. Stiles brushed sand from his trousers and turned to go. He'd exhausted that moment and was looking for the next. They're stronger than we are, Anna heard him say to her father. Lucky for us, they don't know it. She thought he might turn and look back at her, but he must have forgotten. Thank you. Well, Jennifer Egan, thank you so much for being here for Writers on a New England Stage. This is a great honor. It is a pleasure. It's my honor. Thank you. And thanks for reading a bit from the first chapter of your book. I wanted to ask you more about Anna, because she's such a compelling character. Even when she is 11 years old, she's referred to as strong. She's uh, playing with the boys, uh, with the train, instead of playing with dolls. Um, she's parsing the difference between what is squinting. Uh, talk about how Anna evolved in your mind. Well, I, in a way, it's almost the hardest thing for me to explain about the process is where characters come from. I can tell you where they don't come from. I don't write at all about people I know, ever. Mm -hmm. I wish I could. It is, it is my weakest point as a writer that I really have trouble writing about. I mean, I'm, I also am a journalist, so I can write about things in a non-fictional way that are out in the world and that exist, but I really find it hard in fiction to import personalities of people that I know, uh, much to the relief, I have to say, <laughs> of friends and family. Um, they got a free pass on that one. Um, and I also hate writing about myself, so I tend to write about, I tend to um, find that my characters are very different from myself, or at least I need to feel that in order to sort of in order to really let them live, I go a little cold if I feel like I'm, I'm writing about me or my life. So as I said, you know, I, I write in this way with my first drafts, I don't have an outline. Um, and what I'm really looking to do is just gather material, some of which will hopefully be interesting. I mean, it's a kind of a low standard for a first draft when you think about it. <laughs> um, so, but, but I do find that characters tend to sort of spring to life rather spontaneously. And what I'm looking for from them is 
a feeling that they're not, that they're, that they are fresh for me, that I've never met them before. Um, and, and also there, there are certain qualities that I try to make sure I'm thinking about as I'm working on characters, although some of that doesn't happen till editing, but I'll, I'll just mention a couple. Um, one is just, I'm very interested in people's habits of mind, kind of the different ways that we all organize reality for ourselves. Uh, it's very hard to know how other people do that, but I think we can be pretty sure it's not exactly the way we do. Um, and I'm also always looking for contradictions in people. I'm, I think I, the, the consistent character for me is kind of a recipe for boredom because people are, people are not only are people inconsistent, but I would argue that we're kind of defined by our inconsistencies in a way, by the, by the contradictory qualities that we possess. Um, so those are all things I'm looking for, but if I'm writing well, I just sort of feel all that happening without having to make it happen. I guess that's why it's hard for me to quite say where people came from. Um, so Anna just kind of appeared, just as she is. I mean, interestingly, the, the first future, the, especially the first chapter of the book, which goes on after the part I read, really emerged in that blind, spontaneous way fairly close to what it is now. I mean, the words themselves, I'm sure, have changed because writing in that really fast way, I, I often resort to, there's a lot of repetition, I use familiar language. It's not, it's not the language itself that I'm, I'm hoping to get right, but more the kind of basic moves and a sense of who is involved. And all of that was established really quickly. And, and in a certain way, I follow those clues or I sort of follow that beginning into its natural evolution. And so Anna, as a, as a young adult, in a way just kind of grew directly out of this kid who appeared much as she is, mm. much as what I read. Yeah, um, one of the things that kept coming up over and over uh, with respect to Anna in this book, uh, the only term I can use to describe it is something that's very much a 2017, 2018 term, leaning in. She's, <laughs> she's, she's leaning in, I mean, when she's working at the Brooklyn Shipyard, Naval Yard, she is pushing for opportunities. Um, and it, it struck me that you must have been conscious of that somehow, that she is really trying to do what women in that time period are not generally allowed to do. Well, it's an interesting time period because women were not just invited, but essentially begged to do things they'd been told all their lives they couldn't do. I mean, they, they were desperately needed. Um, and yet there were still things that they weren't supposed to do. But in a way, that was asking a lot of these women. So they're supposed to completely um, you know, have a complete paradigm shift and now understand that they can weld, they can plumb. But for example, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, for the first couple of years, they were not allowed to go on ships. The reason for that was because there was a fear that men would not be able to control themselves in these small spaces with women. Luckily, we've entirely solved that problem now, um, completely uh, a non-issue in, in the contemporary workplace. Um, but there was a concern at that time that it might be an issue. Interestingly, of course, the women hated that. I mean, it was a shipyard. Um, but, and, and ultimately, it really behooved the, the, the powers at the yard to, to bring women onto ships because physically they were much better adapted to work in the tight spaces of ships because they tended to be smaller and more limber. So in fact, Ida, the woman I mentioned earlier who had worked with Lucy at the, at the Navy Yard, was a welder and she was very petite and, and in much demand um, to work on ships. So, 
you know, I, I mean, it's not giving too much away to say that Anna ultimately becomes a diver. Now, I don't know that, many people have said, is it really possible that that could have happened at the Navy Yard? The answer is that it is possible, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have posited it if it hadn't been. For example, I would never have suggested that, that Anna dove for the Navy, where women did not dive until the 1970s, or the Army, where they didn't dive until the 80s. The civilian diving program was robust. There was a huge need for civilian divers in New York at that time. Not just at the Navy Yard, but um, there was a French ocean liner that we captured after France fell to the, um, to the Nazis. Not captured it, but sort of held on to it. It was in the port of New York called the Normandy. And the Normandy caught fire while it, during the effort to, or just the very beginning of trying to adapt it to become a troop ship for the Allies because um, liners were perfect for that. And in the course of fighting this fire that broke out, the, fire, the firemen poured so much water into the Normandy that she actually sank right next to Manhattan, right, just right next to the pier. I mean, the, the photos are incredible. Um, at first, there was a fear that it was actually sabotage, but no, it was just human error. So a gigantic civilian diving program emerged around the effort to raise this sunken ship with the hope of re, re, ultimately refitting it as a troop ship. And so um, there were lots and lots of civilian divers. Those programs were not really that carefully documented, and that, that was my opening. <laughs> um, so I, I posited that she wants to become a diver and ultimately does, although I have to say it was very difficult to make that credible. Um, just knowing what I knew and having established many characters, you know, doing many things at the yard, it, it, getting her into the water was not easy, just as it certainly would not have been easy for her to get in the water had, had all of this actually happened. Well, the details in the book seem spot on, just the way it smells inside the suit, the way it feels to descend, and the way it feels to come back up. Uh, what was the research like for that? Did you end up trying on a diving suit? Well, I've never even scuba dived, so I should confess that. I'm afraid. So again, this is a way in which Anna and I are quite different. Um, I did try on one of the another kind of adventure research adventure I had in those first five years. Uh, this was actually in 2009. I got very involved with some army veteran divers who were eager to help me. And the the army has fewer divers than the navy, and maybe that's why they have a very tight knit veterans association, and they have a reunion every other year. So these two gentlemen I was working with who were both Vietnam vets invited me to the reunion. And one of the attractions at the reunion for the attendees is the chance to wear the old heavy gear, the Mark V, which is the, the outfit all of us, I think, would envision if you just say deep sea diver, that iconic image of the, you know, the spherical helmet, the big boots, the lead belt. Um, and so these guys, whoever wants to, can wear this and dive in a tank. Um, and so I first of all got to watch people wear it and dive, which was really interesting. And then they offered to let me get to to let me wear the dress, as they as they put it, which really means almost having a machine assembled around you. Um, and I said yes, thinking 200 pounds. How bad can it be? Oh my God, <laughs> it was so painful. But that was that was useful. The truth is, I don't think I really needed to wear that, that suit to write about it. I mean, I, I think I could have imagined it. But something really interesting did come out of that experience. And in a way, this, 
captures the, sort of how in, so, how, in how in some ways my research um, unexpectedly ended up driving the story in certain ways. So every diver has two tenders, and divers alternate the roles of diver and tender. And the job of the tenders is, first of all, to, to dress the diver, because getting this thing on is not easy, and then to keep the diver alive underwater. And, and putting the dress on correctly is the first step of keeping the diver alive. This is you know, really dangerous. Um, so I had, as I said, had been talking a lot with these two gentlemen, these Vietnam vets, and I suddenly found myself standing amidst them in a pair of long underwear with their hands kind of all over me as we got me, began the process of putting on this dress. And at first I felt incredibly awkward. I just thought, oh, wow, I mean, ooh, here I am in, in long underwear. It just felt bizarre. To them, but I quickly relaxed because it was clear that to them, this was just business as usual. They were the tenders, they were getting me dressed. And once I had become accustomed to that, I actually settled in and felt very comforted by that physical contact. And it, 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 had a, it, it did feel intimate, and that's what was strange about it at first, but I realized that it was more of a kind of domestic intimacy. It was a very routine kind of intimacy. And that was not something I think I would have ever given any thought to had I not experienced it. And that actually ends up being an important thing in the book. So in all kinds of unexpected ways, research figured, but often it was not it was not that I needed to wear the 200 pounds to imagine how that might feel. It was, it was the thing I wasn't looking for. Mm -hmm. We have a question from someone in the audience who, who wants to know, how do you decide when a thread of research becomes a story? Well, that's a good question. The truth is, as, as is often the case when any question begins with, how do you decide? <laughs> my answer is often that I don't decide. The reason I don't decide is that my decisions are sometimes not very good when they're driven by my conscious mind. I feel like I don't, I, I don't come up with very good ideas or choices consciously about fiction. Um, certainly not in terms of figuring out what the actual story will be. I feel like the ideas I have tend to be the ideas anyone might have. They're, they're not fresh. The reason I go to such length to use this unbelievably inefficient system of handwriting, and we're talking 1,400 handwritten pages for the first draft of Manhattan Beach, is that I'm looking to have some of these decisions made for me by my unconscious, which is so much smarter than I am, thank God. Um, so, but, but as I think the anecdote I just told you about the tenders gives you an idea of how the research actually did figure in some of those spontaneous choices or, as I perceive it, discoveries that, that I made during the process of writing. Um, so the answer is, I think I absorbed and, and sort of digested a lot of this research, but it was in a way very um, unfocused research since I didn't know exactly what my story was. Um, and, but then when I began writing in 2012, a lot of these textures and anecdotes and little details of life had become almost like a second memory bank for me to draw on as I wrote in this spontaneous way. And so I think that they, I, I, I didn't decide, but there were all kinds of ways that the research guided me. For example, one thing I noticed in a lot of my oral history interviews, and also just in reading fiction of the time, which was incredibly helpful um, 
record of daily life at any time, was, was something I touched on in my remarks earlier, which was the degree to which regular people seem to have contact with gangsters. That's not really something that I, I, most of us do on a regular basis, I don't think, or at least I don't. You mean knowingly or unknowingly? Knowingly. Knowingly. I mean, gangster was a kind of job description. <laughs> and, and this came up again and again. I mean, I was interviewing a guy who had grown up um, part of a wealthy Jewish family, lived on Central Park in a fancy building that had a, a fancy name, and he was talking about all of the high-profile other people who lived in the building, who, you know, other kids he knew um, were kids of people like movie stars, bankers. Oh, and then there was Frank Costello, a, a huge crime boss who lived there. I mean, can you imagine someone on a co-op board, you know, letting Frank Costello through today? I don't think it would happen. Um, so that was fascinating to me, and this, and in all kinds of ways, like a lot of people who worked at the, a number of gentlemen who were interviewed, either by me or previously, um, who had worked at the Navy Yard were musicians. They very often played in gangster clubs. What? So that was fascinating, and so and that became a huge part of the plot. I mean, one of my major characters, Dexter Styles, you may have, I don't, it's giving nothing away to say that he's he's a crime boss. Um, and, and the idea that his life would, would intersect with respectable society was not something that I don't think, that I would have thought I could make credible narratively if I hadn't had this refrain of contact with gangsters coming up again and again and again. And, and actually my research showed me why. It really grew out of prohibition and the fact that organized crime got organized to take over the liquor business, Americans still wanted to drink, and so gangster was sort of a synonym for a liquor dealer um, and became a rather benign term, and all of that changed gradually um, when prohibition ended and, and organized crime had to get into other much m more unsavory businesses to make up that income stream. Mm -hmm. You do so much research for both your fiction and the journalism that you do. Talk a little bit about how you balance those two, because they're, they're different in some ways, but similar in other ways. How do you balance it? Well, for one thing, I would say that there's no way I could have written Manhattan Beach if I, I didn't have a fair amount of experience as a journalist. There's simply, there was so much I didn't know, and, I, and to write about people at work, I find, which is something I really love to do, I, it seems that I'm always writing about people in, at work in all of my books. You really have to know what you're talking about because people who do a job do it by second nature. They're not having a first encounter with this day at work and therefore they're not, there's no real way to kind of explain what they're doing to the reader it, it, as if, as if um, they were a novice. It just, you just have to know it. And so in this book, I'm, I'm writing in that rather knowing way about merchant sailing, deep sea diving, ship repair, and, and crime, none of which I knew anything about. So my experience as a journalist made it possible for me to approach that breadth of ignorance that I started out with. And so I feel very grateful to it for that. I had to actually stop doing journalism for some years while I worked on Manhattan Beach because once I started writing, and an actual specific story began to unfold, in a certain way, that's when the real research started. The other stuff was a preamble. Now I really had to start to figure out a lot. Um, so 
so in that way, I couldn't balance them. I had to stop doing the, the, um, the journalism. I find that they actually have a, there's a nice counterpoint between them though when I don't have to do so much research for fiction. Um, as practices, they're very different. When I'm writing fiction, I'm sort of creating the world that I'm writing about through the act of writing. Um, with journalism, I'm trying to absorb a complex topic and follow people over time, and the writing itself is a tiny part of the process where I'm trying to distill you know, a, a very fleeting expertise that I've attained in some, in some sort of topic. Um, thematically, there's been a lot of overlap for me, and I think that's because I'm, I'm moved to accept assignments that lead me into terrain that I'm, I'm already interested in. So it's no surprise that sometimes there's, you know, overlap with my fiction ultimately. It's, I feel so lucky to have been able to do both. I, I find that they work well together and, you know, fiction can be very insular. You know, there's, there's a danger of a kind of solipsism, I think, especially as I get older, you know. I, and, and as someone who doesn't really have access to my own life or, you know, what, even really the lives I've witnessed, the specific lives in my fiction, I need I need to be, you know, out there in the world thinking about new things and new ideas. That that's the only way for me to stay current and to and to keep being able to do what I do as a fiction writer. So I think the journalism is a really important part just of my life, honestly. So a visit from the Goon Squad won the Pulitzer Prize, and then you sat down to attempt Manhattan Beach. Did you feel pressure to live up to sort of the expectations that that award sort of sets up for you? I didn't at first because, again, I, I write in such an unthinking way that it, it's, it helps me get around that sort of conscious thought that can be very stymieing. But I did have a really bad maybe year and a half of working on this book after I had, I think it was, I can't quite remember where it fell in the process, but it was, the problem was that I realized that even though I knew a lot, I had done a huge amount of research, as, as is clear, but I felt like the, the, the story, I didn't really feel like I could be myself in the period. I felt like I was kind of stiff. It, the equivalent would be, it reminded me of when I lived in Italy one summer and I, was, I had a scholarship to learn Italian and I kind of knew some Italian, but I realized that in Italian, I was basically kind of dumb. Because I couldn't really make, I couldn't get jokes or make jokes. And I, I, in a way, I couldn't really express complex thought or understand it when, it when I encountered it in Italian. And so in a certain way, I just, I, I felt like I was sort of a, a really bland version of myself in Italian. And I felt like in this period, I was a bland version of myself as a writer for a long time. I, I, I found it hard to get to the humor. I couldn't, I, I really like extremes. I want to find those extremes. I love the moments when something is both crazy and yet, and yet somehow logical. And I ultimately found those moments, but it took a really long time before I got comfortable enough. And there's a, a good analogy from journalism, which is, that that period where you know enough, you know something, but not enough to really be fluent, not enough to write authoritatively. And that's a very uncomfortable position to be in when you know that ultimately you're gonna have to. There's always the question, will I get there? And I really thought maybe I wouldn't with this. And then 
the pressure suddenly arrived. It came crashing down, you know, wow, I'm, what if I write a really crappy, mediocre book? What a disappointment, like I finally have a, a readership and they're gonna be so, un, so unhappy with me. Um, so how, so did that you, was, how did you push through that? I just kept going. I mean, I, I'm pretty dogged and, uh, and, and, I, and it, you know, I can create a very uncomfortable work environment for myself. I really realized working on this book, like if a boss talked to me the way I talk to myself, I would not only quit, I might sue. <laughs> I mean, I was just, I can be so incredibly harsh and undermining of my own efforts. And I think I internalized that pressure and made, made my life pretty unhappy, but, but I always keep going. And luckily, I, I find that doggedness pays off like nothing else because you do get to a different place as long as you don't stop. Um, and I, I, I didn't, so I, I got through it. And, and there was a wonderful payoff because once I finally achieved that fluency and was able to feel like I was finally myself in this material, in, in this environment, I have never enjoyed writing more. It was the most delicious escape. And whereas when I was suffering, I thought if I can just pull this off, I'll never write another historical novel. I won't go near this kind of challenge again. I'm now, I'm thinking about the 19th century, so. I crossed over. <laughs> well, Jennifer Egan, thank you again so much for being here on Writers on a New England Stage. We really appreciate it. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. This has been Writers on a New England Stage.